In episode number 11 of the Holistic OBGYN, you're going to be gifted with a conversation that I have with one of my true heroes, Charles Eisenstein. He doesn't know this, but he's been a mentor of mine from afar for years. He's an author. He's a social philosopher. His books include The Ascent of Humanity, Sacred Economics, The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know Is Possible, which is, by the way, one of my top three most gifted books. And I've given away a lot of books, if you know me. He also wrote a book called Climate, A New Story. His ideas are revolutionary and they will completely change your mind and how you live your life. With his ex-wife, Patsy Eisenstein, he also started the New and Ancient Story Mighty Networks Forum, which you can find online, you can join, and be in community with a variety of individuals from around the world who all share the common goal of helping to build a more beautiful world that our hearts know is possible. <laughs> Charles has been interviewed everywhere. And while some of his, his ideas are a little bit controversial, they're only controversial because they confront this old story, the old story of separation. That is highlighted, not least of which, through our disconnection with nature, but our disconnection with one another. And through the pandemic, his writings have been a lifeline for me and many others. So it was a true pleasure to interview Charles, and he, is, he was so gracious with his time to do an interview with me, and I hope you enjoy it. Without further ado, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Charles Eisenstein, who I believe is one of the greatest thought leaders of our time. Let's go. Good morning, Charles. Morning, Nathan. It's good to see you again. It's been a couple of weeks since my yeah. visit up in uh, Rhode Island. Yes. Thank you for uh, for hosting me. That was really generous of you. Yeah, it was great. I enjoyed it too. It was a lot of fun. We'll we'll plan another one, and we'll I'll have two babies in tow <laughs> the next time. The next time we're there. Um, so, Charles, you know, already done the introduction. I think few people who listen to this show need much introduction to you and your work. And I'll say it, I've said it time and time again, um, what you've contributed to, you know, the, the greater good. <laughs> I don't even really like that term, but what you've contributed into the space of intellectuals and the do-gooder community is, is a bit of a framework for a new story that you and I both kind of have, have sort of observed forming, but also it kind of serves as a blueprint as to how we might take those first steps. Um, at least I see it as a blueprint for a lot of people that maybe don't have the courage to take those first steps um, towards that, this new world that we know is emerging. And, and it's all good things. It's just, it comes with a little bit of pain. And so I think that some of the things that you and I are going to talk about and that you've talked about in other interviews, it's a little bit confronting for people. Um, it can be a little bit challenging, but it doesn't mean that it's not that it's not important to to be said, to be kind of put out there. So, um, so the first thing I really wanted to ask you about was, you know, in in the way that you relate myth to community building, right, or to the old versus new stories. The old story being what you often describe, especially in um, the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible. Which of your four books is really the one that. I think most people are familiar with, but really I use it as like a bit of a, hey, start with this and then you can go through a scent of humanity, sacred economics, um, climate, et cetera. So 
um, the old story being the story of separation, right? We're separate from nature. We're separate from one another. It's, it's a dog-eat-dog world out there, etc. versus the new story, which is the story of interbeing. Um, and I hope I'm using the phrases right, but within the framework of myth, how do you think we can, how do you view what's currently going on in healthcare and particularly as it pertains to how we give birth to children or perhaps even how we die? Yeah. Um, so there are, th- I, I mean, I, I use the word myth in various ways. Um, I wouldn't call things like, like you mentioned before in our conversation, like uh, you gave the example of the doctor can fix you or that uh, the hospital is the place to give birth. Or another one would be um, medical science is getting better and better all the time and we're getting healthier and healthier as a result. Right. Like you could call those things myths, but I usually don't use myth to refer to those. Uh, for me, myth means something very different than just a belief system or another sense that it's used that I don't use it is just as a synonym for a fantasy or a delusion. Mm. Part of the myth, the real myth the tr- the, that 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 governs modern society, is that we're we're done with myth. That mm. myths are a relic of the past. We're mm. silly stories that you know, <laughs> thunder was the result of Zeus throwing lightning bolts, and earthquakes are the titans rolling around underground that were substitutes for <clears throat> for scientific understanding, like. That, so part of our mythology is that we don't have mythology anymore, that it's right. a relic of the past. Mm. But actually, we do have it. It's just kind of invisible to us. Mm. And it's things like um, the myth of ascent, of progress, mm-hmm. that life is getting better and better because of science and technology. Scientific myths that say that um, everything in the world can be quantified and ultimately controlled. Um, the myth of, you referenced it before, separation, that mm-hmm. my fundamental being is a separate self in a world of other. Uh, myth, The myth of control that says that human progress is a matter of exerting more and more control upon an external reality that has no consciousness or intelligence of its own. Therefore, we must impose intelligence and order on a world that has none. Right. Okay, like right. all of that, that's the myth. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> from, from those, from, from that mythology come things like uh, uh, birth should be done in a hospital because it becomes medicalized, put under control. All of the, the wild variables are eliminated. Uh, we can improve upon nature because nature has no intelligence of its own. Of intelligence comes from us. Okay, so that's, I would say that, that the childbirth thing is a subsidiary myth. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, same thing with the doctor is going to fix you. Right. Like, so, right. so, yeah, those are outcroppings of a deeper mythology, but I wouldn't right. call them myths in and of themselves. Yeah, so I guess as a cor- corollary to that, and I mean, of course, as always, you, you put things so eloquently. I think as a corollary to that, right, the control of nature is reflected in, in a wide variety of ways within how we care for ourselves, right? So we saw this with industrial farming. If we could control 
the yields of specific crops, then all people will be fed. But then we realized, oh, there's actually an or, there's actually some sort of organization to the otherwise chaotic means that nature produces, you know, nutritious plants, for example, right? So when we wipe out all of the microbiome of the soil, we end up with a perhaps a monoculture of soybeans or corn that is not it's not really the way it was intended to be, right? We know that they're not as nutritious when they're not, you know, raised through biodynamics or regenerative agriculture, et cetera. And then we apply that, we've applied those same mechanisms of, of control within medicine, right? So as long as we sterilize our surgical instruments, right, you're not going to get an infection. But what if we sterilize your skin with preparations, alcohol-based preparations all day long, right, on your armpits, on your hands, in your groin with antimicrobial soap, and then also we sterilize the the GI tract, right? We now know, looking back, that that was a mistake. We can't just sterilize ourselves and, and kind of step out of our, of our nature and expect good outcomes. Well, in, in birth, we do this more than anywhere else. We actually, we throw more and more medicine. We, we further and further medicalize, or I'd even dare say pathologize the birth experience as a means of trying to control variables that we have absolutely no control over. So, um, you know, you've had a couple home births. Tell me about tell me about your experience with birth and and how maybe some of this some of this ties into how you see perhaps you know birth being done as an alternative to the hospital. Hmm. Yeah, I've, I have four children, um, and witnessing their births were the four best moments of my life. Yeah, <laughs> I the first so. two were born at the home of a traditional midwife. And for the last two births, the midwife came to our home. And um, so here's the, here's the thing about control. It's like an addiction. In fact, I would say it is an addiction because each application of it seems to be a very good thing and seems to work. Like if you apply chemical fertilizer to your field, like you do get a better crop the next year. If you then apply insecticides to kill the insect pests, then you get, you know, again, you get a higher yield. Like each one of those things seems to work. But over time, the general condition requires more and more applications of control. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in a given, so like to apply it to birth, like, you know, people tried to frighten us into not doing a home birth. This could happen, that could happen, that could happen. And if, you know, such and such a thing happens and you're not at a hospital, the baby and or the mother could die. Like all of those things were, were true. Yet somehow, overall, it, it, on the systems level, uh, and maybe uh, my information is out of date, but this, because this is years and years ago that I, you know, started studying this but the in countries like the netherlands where still a lot of births most births are done at home the overall birth mortality is lower right <laughs> even though some babies die because of some things that could have been prevented if they were had been in a hospital right right but as and same thing with agriculture like each of these interventions brings a temporary increase in the yield but uh as a system over time, we're depleting the topsoil, becoming addicted. Like now, if you if you stop using these things, then yields plummet to zero. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So we have to keep using them. 
Mm-hmm. And hmm. yeah, um, and the same thing, you know, as, oh, so here's another, another thing I want to bring up about that. Like the things that we, so, so if you look at agricultural chemicals or modern medicine through a very narrow lens of, say, in the first case, yield, uh, in terms of how much uh, protein and, and calories are you producing mm-hmm. or other and some other small subset of, of uh, measurables. Metrics, okay? yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Same thing with birth. Like how many babies are alive? Like, like suppose, okay, but you, when you do that, you're not paying attention to all the things that you're not measuring. Right, right. Right. So like the food becomes more and more bland and more and more depleted of say micronutrients mm-hmm. uh, or um, other things that we don't even know about yet. And, and with the birth, you might have more live births if you say take every baby and isolate it in uh, a nursery for the first week of life. Like, like today, there's this trend of testing the parents. And if they test positive for COVID, the baby's taken away right. and for like two weeks. Right. Okay. Maybe you're incrementally, I mean, I don't know if babies even die from COVID, but whatever. Like you're maybe, maybe incrementally improving that child's chance of survival. But what about the psychological damage of the torture of being taken away from your mother right away mm-hmm. and put under whatever fluorescent lights in an isolation chamber and maybe held twice a day by a nurse or something like that. Like, like what are the long-term effects? Like does, does your mortality statistics include elevated rates of addiction and suicide 30 years later? Like, no. Right. And so, so here's where we have to be able to navigate based on something else besides the measurables. Right. And that is, and how do you navigate by that? Well, we have an instrument called the heart you know, we have the the innate knowledge of our in our cells and our bones and our guts. We got to start navigating by that, because otherwise we're going to be living in this simplified min max mm. world mm-hmm. of only the measurables, and the heart is gone and the soul is gone from right. life. And right. isn't that happening right. today? Right. Yeah. Yeah, so the story that you're referring to, I think it was a short story I shared when I was visiting. The the short end of it is that, you know, parents, they have a baby at home, the midwife transfers to the hospital, the mom and dad are swabbed for COVID, the dad comes up positive, the baby is taken from the family, and they're not al- allowed to pick up their baby out of, quote, quarantine um, until both parents have a negative test. And then, you know, heaven forbid, a week later, the mom tests positive, right? And the dad's negative. Now we're, we're stuck in this trap, you know, and and I've had to advocate for parents to get out of there. But, you know, one really, really important example of what you're talking about is if a baby has butt down, we stopped, you know, quote, allowing. I don't even like the word allow in the in the conversation around maternity care because it's not my decision. It's really a birthing woman's decision as to what her risk tolerance is of various things. But I digress. What happened back in 2001 was a, a big study came out that said, hey, babies who are born butt first, breach is what we're talking about here. They have a higher chance of certain metrics, right? Like, you know, demise or encephalopathy or requirement to admit to the NICU or whatever, right? Because we're afraid that that big head is going to get trapped. 
Well, so the study looked at a composite score of maternal and neonatal mortality, and those that mortality statistic, that's a that that's a composite in mor- morbidity as well. It's a composite of all those measurable things. But what about the trauma of strapping a woman down, crucifixion style, taking her baby out of her belly, which is dystopic in and of itself, right? We should do some C-sections, but to be doing it 40% of the time, or in some situations, 90% of the time in certain certain populations. Um, to do that completely ignores just how traumatizing it is for the mom and the dad to be wrapped in hazmat suits, sitting behind a blue drape that's two inches in front of your face, with only an anesthesiologist behind them who's just looking at dials, not really there and being present. And then there's two surgeons who are talking about like the Knicks game and and how Kevin Durant performed or whatever else while they're performing the surgery, which would have otherwise been a very sacred birthing process. Baby goes to the warmer, baby perhaps even has a hard time transitioning and goes to the NICU and all that other stuff. Well, hey, if the mom and the baby are okay, like they have a heartbeat and their their lungs seem to be working, then we consider that a victory. But what about the downstream consequences to the mom, the partner of the mother, the baby, et cetera? I mean, the, and, and so this one study completely derailed us. And now we don't even teach residents how to relieve dystocias if a baby is coming out butt first. So now it effectively, like you said, the addiction of control has led us to doing far more C-sections, not to mention the morbidity associated with six C-sections you know, later after you've done this first, which may or may not even have been, been necessary for a breech baby. Um, we, fail to, we fail to capture all of these intangible things. And part of the reason is that we've become so addicted to doing the surgery because it's, it's easy because we do so many of them now that we fail to take a step back and realize what are the actual downstream consequences. And this is, this is present in so many um, areas of our culture. Yeah. Yeah. And your story, like, um, wasn't the only one that I've heard, yeah. you know, along okay. these lines. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's not a, a rare thing, I don't think. So when you, when you talk about the story of separation, how do you, how do you, you know, I, I just finished rereading um, A More Beautiful World. And I'm really curious if you could put into words what you see in healthcare and how, how it pertains to the story of separation and what it might look like as we emerge into a new story of interbeing. Yeah. Okay. So the story of separation fundamentally is the mythology of self, of modernity, which says you are a discrete, separate individual. Mm-hmm. Like you, And it could be that you are uh, different fields of, of thought have a different definition of the self. So biology, it's the, you know, expression of the DNA. Um, in psychology, it's like this, you know, bubble of consciousness. Uh, in religion, trapped in the skull. Soul. <laughs> trapped in the skull. In religion, it's kind of the same, the soul encased in flesh. Yeah. Um, economics, it's the self-interest maximizing rational mm-hmm. man, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. classically, a man. Um yeah, so all of these uh, in bio, yeah, and, and they're they're because we're separate. What's good for you is not necessarily good for me. Mm-hmm. What's good for the world is not necessarily good for me because we're separate. We're in competition with each other. Mm. So my well-being depends on outcompeting, dominating, or at least protecting myself from all of those other self-interest maximizing competitors. I mean, this is how biology has been narrated to us. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a free-for-all. It's a war of each against all. The maximization of reproductive self-interest. The genes that do that, they survive, they thrive, they replicate. And the ones that aren't quite as good 
at selfishness, they disappear from the gene pool. So this is this is um, a basic part of our mythology. So if you uh, if you take that, if you accept that, then health becomes a matter of of the health of this separate being. My health does not depend on the health of other beings. In fact, it comes uh, in spite of other beings mm-hmm. and of nature itself. Like, and we might admit, well, we have a conditional dependency on nature to provide us with, you know, say oxygen from the rainforests or something like that, or the algae in the oceans. But if you narrate it that way, the next step is until we replace those beings with technology. Why not? Mm-hmm. So from that, you have visions of bubble cities where everything is artificial. Well, so when it comes to health, this, this ideology excludes the importance of relationship mm. to health. Mm-hmm. And that, that would be, say, the microbiome. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could be social relationships. In fact, um, <laughs> this was... I made this point actually during COVID, you know, that the biggest predictor of chronic disease is loneliness, mm-hmm. bigger even than smoking, mm-hmm. drinking, like you're better off smoking, drinking and, and partying and having a rich social life than you are, you know, as a hermit living an abstemious lifestyle. Right, right. <laughs> so, so like, where is that understanding in the public health policies of social distancing lockdown, quarantine, masking. Sure. It's yeah. absent. Yeah. Now that doesn't mean that I'm not actually going to say what it doesn't mean or does mean, but I just want to say that that it was absent. Those considerations were right. were absent. Right. They're not easy to measure. Right. Right. Um and and I guess the other part of the story of separation is what I mentioned before that intelligence, the origin of intelligence is the human mind. Mm. That nature is this random melee of force and mass and that that therefore we cannot trust nature to move toward anything like any kind of purpose any any greater and greater organization uh, therefore we have to manage nature and manage the body because the body's stupid it'll just break down but fortunately we have science to the rescue mm. to fix it and, and to keep it coherent because yeah. it's like a machine that has breaking down parts all the time. Mm-hmm. That, that, that paradigm blinds us to a different kind of medicine that could yeah. be um, geared toward participation in a natural process mm-hmm. toward wholeness mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. rather than imposing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there there was a patient that came to mind. You, you were talking about the whole sm- smoking, drinking, partying thing, and uh, my family, uh, my lineage is Greek on my mo- mother's side, and um, there was this patient I bonded with while I was a resident. I was in the GYN oncology clinic where they, you know, they treat ovarian cancer, uterine cancer, etc. And she had come and had her primary treatment for ovarian cancer. When, when ovarian cancer becomes widely metastatic, especially when it's a higher grade, like a pap serous carcinoma, like one of these really, really nasty um, 
one of these really nasty kind of like highly likely, uh, highly recurrent, you know, disease processes. She was treated and then she was like, you know what, I'm going to go spend the rest of my days in Greece. Like, so they, they went back to Greece and she was like, I'll come back in a year or so and we'll check up on things. And when I had met her, she was like on her sixth year of just coming back to have things checked on and she was still alive. Like that was all that I needed to know. Like, damn you. And you actually are living a pretty good life in Greece. And when you asked her about her lifestyle, she was picking fruit off the trees. She was getting sunlight. She was drinking wine as you do when you're Greek, you drink wine all the time and everybody smokes. Yet she had sort of defied the odds and the, the, the sort of, uh, I think the, um, the sort of, uh, I don't know, common denominator of those rare cases of spontaneous healing and regression and whatnot, what people fail to realize is that she was with people that she loves all day long, hugging, kissing, mm -hmm. dancing, celebrating life. And that in and of itself has a, has a therapeutic um, um, mechanism to it. Right. So, 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 so there's this, there's this tendency to um, kind of uh, validate and justify those things through this medical lens of it makes you healthier. It makes you live longer. Yeah. And I like to ask, well, what if it doesn't? Yeah. Right. You know, right. Is the purpose of life to survive as long as possible? <laughs> like if you could live longer by never touching anybody yeah, and uh, doing everything online, yeah, going to school online, shopping online, dating online, uh, working online, uh, getting entertained online, and you could live longer. You could reduce your chances of an early death. Um, does that mean you should do it? Yeah. Like, is this the litmus test? Is this the 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 uh, decision procedure that we should all adopt? Well, in the last year and a half, we've basically been told yes. Yeah. Right. And I like to say, okay, well, what if, what if having a rich social life? and hugs and community and sitting in circle with other people's faces and being outdoors. What if it didn't lengthen your lifespan? <laughs> what if it shortened it a little bit? Yeah. It, it doesn't, but what if it did? Yeah. Like, I don't want to actually make our decisions based on this little linear calculation of like the single quantity mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. life expectancy. Right. But and I think most sane people would also reject that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yet we have, because of the uh, um, veneration of science, which is all about numbers. I mean, that's essentially what science is. Yeah. It's the study of quantities. Yep. Quantifiable. If you can't quantify it, you cannot scientifically, right? right. And, and so as <clears throat> people, institutions, governments especially aspire to being more scientific and more rational. And if you look into that word, it is actually about ratios, the abstraction of relationships. Mm. Um, as we aspire to, the, to, to those things, we naturally leave out any other consideration. Right, right. Yeah. Right. And you also wrote this beautiful essay, The Coronation, which is kind of what got me back into your work, you know, about what was that a year, whatever, early 2020 when you wrote that. And you mentioned that, you know, it's I, we're not saying that we shouldn't take precautions. We're not saying that we shouldn't try to mitigate, you know, the spread of infectious disease. But what I told people early on in the, the whole pandemic was, let's say that this is the worst thing 
that has ever faced humanity. It's not, but let's say that it were. And if you could just stay home, never see the people you love, never kiss a stranger, never hold hands with um, somebody, you know, uh, never sit next to somebody on the bus without worrying about if, <clears throat> whether they have this contagion. If you can't go to restaurants, if you can't go and, um, you know, do any of the things that make our life rich, go to ecstatic dance parties, whatever it is, Burning Man's canceled forever. Like if, if none of the things that you hold valuable, if you couldn't do any of those things again, including like a basic dinner party where people aren't afraid of, you know, who's been vaccinated and all this other stuff. If you could stay inside and avoid all social engagement, but you could live 50 more years or let's, let's not even say 50 more years. Let's say five more years, or you could live one year with as rich a life as you possibly can imagine, right? That mo the most beautiful daily itinerary ever, which would you choose? And invariably people say, of course, I would take the year, but we. But it's so abstract when we try to apply it to these sweeping legislations about, hey, how to co keep ourselves <clears throat> safe. And one thing I wanted to kind of tie in is, in the, in our in our systematic control of of everything, right? Which is really what science has been reduced to. What one variable can we impact? And maybe that's not necessarily a bad thing. But what about like for for like sepsis or something that might be really helpful but what about whenever you're 95 and you're approaching the end of your natural life we we also tend to impose as much control as we can at the end of life process where we want to exhaust every last medical technology before we say we've we've tried everything and now you can actually die now we we'll, we will let you die like there's so much mm -hmm. language even in that what i just said but that's the language i was trained with as a hospice physician so so you know so what i'm getting at here is that even when we get to the end of our natural life, even then we still feel compelled. It's, you're right, it's the addiction to control. We still feel compelled to try to do everything in our power to prolong life without any, um, without any reflection on just what quality of life for a 95-year-old with extensive bladder cancer means. Like, do we want to be breaking your ribs? Do we want to be shocking you? Do we want to be putting you on ventilators, continuous dialysis, and, and everything else until we've decided that you're, quote, brain dead. And that's where the mind-body thing comes into play. Well, like, they don't have a mind anymore, so I, perhaps they're, it's okay that we relinquish control over the process. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that language, but it kind of flows into this, this sort of um, mm -hmm. rubric that you're describing. Yeah, the ultimate delusion of control is that we can conquer death. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. It's, it's, it's a, actually a profoundly anti-life idea mm -hmm. paradoxically mm -hmm. that you can and should try to conquer death mm. sometimes i imagine the horror that might ensue for those who say they do succeed in uploading their consciousness or some portion thereof into a computer mm. i mean can you imagine mm. like the hell mm. of being trapped in a machine mm. <laughs> like i mean it could be it could be like the worst thing you could possibly do yeah but, but this ambition comes, I think, in large part from, again, a conception of the self that is nothing but a skin-encapsulated consciousness. Yeah, yeah. Because that, that is the gener that's generated by the physical brain. Because then death is the total annihilation of that self. Yeah. And and it's like the ultimate catastrophe. Right. 
cultures that understand the self to be larger than that, who understand the interrelated, interexistent aspect of the self, and who don't confine it just to this body, this brain, they do not think that death is the ultimate catastrophe. Mm. They put a higher priority on living life well mm -hmm. and dying well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hey, quick interlude here. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Charles Eisenstein. Wanted to let you all know that the Holistic OBGYN is partnered with a wide variety of companies, including Symbiotica, Heart and Soil, which is Joel, uh, Paul Saladino's company. He wrote The Carnivore Code. Also partnered with Bioptimizers, Essential Oil Wizardry, Quicksilver Scientific, and Mitozen, which makes this incredible oxytocin-containing Hape-esque nasal spray that I love. Uh, we're also partnered with The Birth Deck. And at any of these companies, if you go onto their websites and use the discount code BELOVED, you'll get a fat discount. So I hope you take advantage of that. And uh, if you have any questions about their products, I'm going to be interviewing a variety of people who are um, affiliated with the companies, if not the owners themselves. And I, I think you're really going to enjoy their, um, their contributions to the health and wellness space. So again, Symbiotica, Essential Oil Wizardry, The Birth Deck, Bioptimizers, Heart and Soil, and Quicksilver Scientific. Head over to their websites, make some purchases. Oh, and Mitozen, um, and use the the coupon code BELOVED for a nice discount. Let's get back to the show. Here's more with Charles Eisenstein. Yeah. And and just to and just as like a reiteration of so many things you've said, you are not saying that we need to be devoid of technology. I just want to clarify that for everybody. Like we're not we're not we're not arguing for the for a return to primitivism. It's just that as no. we've applied more and more technological constructs of control, we've actually created a host. It's like a cosmic game of whack-a-mole. We've created this other host of societal ills that unless you're willing to really step back and see the big picture, you may just completely miss because you myopically are just focusing on the measurable. Right. The, for me, the question is, what does technology become when we understand our role here right. through the lens of participation rather right. than domination? Right, right. Yeah. Because I believe that all of our gifts as human beings are are beautiful mm. and necessary and and have a purpose in service to life, just like every other species. We have not, as a civilization, conceived of ourselves yet as being in service to life, as having that purpose, right. as understanding ourselves as the next unfolding of complexity and, and life and beauty on earth mm. and maybe someday beyond. Like that's not... You know, we've seen it more as a matter of conquest right. and rising above life, not serving life. Right. So if we reconceive ourselves in that way, then technology becomes something very different. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yes, and we have capacities. We develop capacities that that are like would seem miraculous right. from our current situation, because right now our technology is reaching a limit, which is. Um, the limit imposed by what we can control and predict, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. what we can make happen by the application of force right. according to a plan. The, the, like, to move past that limit, we have to 
be able to tap into um, processes, happenings that are bigger than us. Mm. And when we do that, then, I mean, we see this in, in holistic health, you know, where, where like people like my wife, who's a, you know, hands-on healer, like, I mean, pretty much every day, I mean, quite often people come in with conditions that are considered medically incurable, that they've been to doctors for years, you know, and they have, and she like in, you know, half an hour with gentle touch, uh, often can totally reverse those conditions. Mm-hmm. It's not because she is forcing it to happen. She's more of like holding a holding a space for an organic process mm. that wants to happen to happen. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The way that Stella's your your wife is extraordinary, and she uh, did a treatment for me on her on the table, and she was trying to talk me through because I'm sort of like. I kind of consider myself, <laughs> it's not formal, but it's like an apprenticeship with her. Like every time I talk to her and have her hands on me, she's like, she just teaches me something a little bit different. And one of the sort of packets, the sort of, um, I think it's hard for her to put language to what she does, but what she tried to describe was um, was like, I'm not telling the body to heal. I'm not I'm not telling the the fascia, hey, you need to close yourself in this area that there might be an early hernia forming. I'm literally just getting out of the way and encouraging it, like, or, or giving it the suggestion that you can heal, like it's okay to heal right now. And then she actually senses something happen, and then you get a bunch of gurgles, and a person starts, you know, suddenly starts to feel like, oh, I can move my hip again. You know, it's a really phenomenal thing. But again, there's nothing measurable there, so people want to discard a lot of holistic means of healing, right? And what Stella's doing is not does not require a you know an eight thousand dollar machine or a $10 million clinic with all of the accoutrements, right? She's really just being present with the tissue and giving yeah. a gentle encouragement. So, and, and, and I think like the results of what she does can be measured. Uh, you know, people that's true go in and yeah. their tumor is gone or whatever, but they can't be standardized. Like you could never run a controlled study on what she does. Right. Right. Because you can't eliminate variables. Right. That's it. You know, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I have friends who I talk about, you know, with these things who are in the medical community and they're like, but what's the mechanism? And I think what, what, what that tells me is like, we're so focused on like, it's sort of like, um, we're going to talk about braiding sweetgrass again, Robin Wall Kimmerer's book, but she uses the, the language of, of like, if I'm out in the woods, I could take a piece of a plant and I can say, what can you do for me? Or I could take a, you know, before I even take a piece of a plant, I can look at the plant and under- try to understand the root structure and, and what other plants are growing near it. And I can, instead of asking, what can you do for me? I can ask, what do you have to teach me? And there's something subtly beautiful in that, which is reflected in, in people needing the mechanism for why various technologies work. If I don't know the mechanism, then I can't trust the results. Well, what happens mm-hmm. when you actually see good results? Like these are people who are healing. You can say placebo, you can say nocebo, you can say whatever you want, but without knowing the mechanism within the medical community and the science, the medical sciences, without knowing the mechanism, we, we don't seem to even be able to start writing the paper. <laughs> um, right. and, and so instead of being outcome driven, it's really, hey, here are the tools we've got. How can we apply those tools in order to get the result that we're hoping for? And that's actually anti- antithetic to the, to the scientific process. But um, 
I digress. That, that, you know, it's interesting that what is the mechanism that is also an outcropping of that basic mythology that essentially says that the world is a gigantic mechanism. Right, right, right. That everything works mechanically in the sense of a force-based causality. Mm. And I don't know if, about you, but I bet a lot of people listening to this have experienced like profound synchronicities yeah. in their life. Mm-hmm where you just meet just the right person at just the right moment. They tend to happen when you've let go of something, Mm. when you're in a place of uncertainty, Mm. when you're not in control of things, when you've just moved to a new city, when you've just left in a relationship and you just walk out the door and wander down the street and something amazing happens. Like those kinds of synchronicities. Well, what's the mechanism? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like when Carl Jung first characterized this, it was he had this patient who had had like, some dream of ancient Egypt, you know, and the, um, can't remember exactly what it was, but, but like, there's like the scarab brooch, you know, and, and then like a huge, there's like a thump on the window pane. And like, there's this beetle that looks just like this ancient Egyptian thing. <laughs> and it's like, like, what is the mechanism for that to happen? Yeah. Yeah. You know, well, maybe the things happen sometimes without a mechanism. Right. Right. Like maybe they do, you know, yeah. the, the idea that they don't like the the categorical statement that everything happens because of a forced based mechanism. That is an ideology. Yeah. That is a metaphysical assertion mm. that people that that science takes on faith mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. doesn't mean it's wrong. Doesn't mean that we can't achieve marvelous things through the application of force. We can it's just for me, it's just like, what is the proper domain of that particular mode mm. of interacting with the universe? And what we have now is a civilization that has taken that to the exclusion of almost everything else yeah. and applied it to everything. That's right. Including each other. That's right. Yeah. Enough of that. Enough of that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, man. Well, I know that we could we could record for like hours here. I, I want to get into a new essay that you wrote, um, the Time to Push essay, which seems like it was born out of um, sort of a, an observation of what's happening in the world today and kind of the status of this, the emergence of this new story. Um, the essay that I'm referring to um, taps into Stanislav Grof's perinatal matrices theory. And this is a theory that's not known among many people. So when I bring it up at dinner parties, it usually makes me seem like I'm a, some sort of sorcerer, you know, that that uh, has read everything, you know, to date. But what what really uh, I think Stan Groff is best known for is his work with LSD at end of life and, and helping, helping people cope with the uncertainty, you know, of their own mortality, right? Like help them be confronted with it in a, in a safe way. Um, safe way. I, I don't even like the word safe, but you know what I mean? Like where they feel like I'm, I can explore this without completely losing grip of reality. So he got famous through that, but then he also was, was got to be really, really well known for this, at least in the past for his theory on perinatal matrices. So you've applied his theory to the emergence of this new story. Could you talk a little bit about your essay and, and kind of some of the, the thought patterns that were kind of threading through this? Yeah. So the the basic, like the underlying impulse for this 
is when I look out on the world and I see the, the horrors that afflict humanity and the struggle and like the, just everything we're going through. And there's part of me that um, understands that this is all part of a larger process. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That we're not just randomly disintegrating mm. as a civilization. So if what we are seeing is a transition or a metamorphosis and not just um, a collapse, then, okay, I start to look for metaphors. And different people uh, take different metaphors. I think they all have some utility. You know, there's the butterfly metaphor, the imaginal cells mm -hmm. and so forth, mm -hmm. you know. Um, I often apply an initiatory template mm. to it. Um, and sometimes I, I find it useful. Like, I'm not saying that any one of these is, here is what is happening mm -hmm. to us. Mm -hmm. But they illuminate aspects of it. Yeah. And so one of these is the metaphor of birth. Humanity or civilization is being born right now. We've been in the womb, the Gaian womb, Mother Earth, accommodating our growth effortlessly. Until a few centuries ago, maybe, we started to started to hit the limits. Mm -hmm. the, the commodious womb became tight, and we couldn't move around as much anymore. Uh, we're, we're, and we became more and more uh, aware of these limits until maybe the contractions start, but the cervix hasn't opened yet. So the world is bearing down on us. It feels hopeless. This is stage two of Stanislav Grof's perinatal matrices, um, that it's, it's a feeling of no exit. Mm. It's a feeling of, of, of hell, despair, mm. um, frustration. Like you can't, you can't get out. It's there's intolerable, but there's nowhere to go. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that's how it's been as we've, we've looked at the impossibility of the human condition and the futility of all of our efforts over the long centuries to to stop doing this to each other, to stop, you know, the to stop the horror. Yeah. Um, and now, the the stage after that, if if we're going to use this metaphor, the cervix opens, mm. and when it's fully dilated, then the contractions are starting to push the baby out. And because she can now see a light at the end of the tunnel, like literally, even if it's more intense on one level, like you know you're going somewhere now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You can see in, that there's another world waiting for you. And what I'm saying in this essay is that we are right now at that transition point where it's time to push, where we're being pushed down through the birth canal. Mm -hmm. and and. No longer is this there this sense of futility, even as it gets more and more intense. Like these contractions, I mean, they're really getting going now. You know, we could face, you know, supply chain disruptions, you know, civil strife, mm -hmm. hunger, um, financial collapse, you know, like the breakdown of all kinds of systems that actually push us into action. Uh, so a huge process is happening to us. Titanic pressures are bearing down upon us mm. and we're being born. Mm. And, and 
you know, it doesn't mean we just sit back and wait for it to happen because the, the life of the baby is important in the birth process. You know, we respond to these pushes and we develop even our muscles mm-hmm. uh, in response mm-hmm. to these pushes. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and then, you know, maybe we're not only the baby, maybe we're also the mother. Maybe we're also the midwife. Maybe we're also the witness, the doula, the father. Um, so I don't want to, to hold this metaphor too rigidly, mm. but I think a lot of people sense that there's some truth in it, mm. that something has really shifted. Even as it's gotten more and more life and death, there's a lifting of the despair, mm. a sense that, yeah, we are, it's not guaranteed, but there is a place to go. This has not all been in vain. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so Groff's four stages, as you you elaborated on them, the amniotic universe is when the baby is content and happy. The cosmic oppression is that you're in a pressure cooker and there's no end in sight. Then you have the um, struggle with the death and rebirth, and that's kind of the stage that we're emerging through, that we're, that we're probably teetering into now. And then there's the experience of the death and rebirth. There's the baby and placenta and everything is out in a new mm-hmm. new, new territory. Um, I think that during that pressure cooker stage, right, where everybody's just feeling like something has to change, but there's no light yet. I think that is very well reflected also in your essay, um, the rehearsal is over, right? Where like all of this strife that we're seeing in our society, right? It's been growing for decades, right? The political strife, the economic strife, the sort of the illusion of scarcity is just growing stronger than ever. Like people know that there is something that needs to change. And we also can all agree that there's illness in our society. And I don't mean just mental illness and all that other stuff and chronic disease and diabetes. I mean, this is not the most beautiful way that everybody thought or thinks that, that, that our society can, can function. Um, and so now that we are in that third stage, perhaps teetering into that third stage, what are some things that you're doing or that people in your circles are doing in order to try to facilitate this, right? Accepting that, hey, there's this mind, this the minefield we need to cross. How can, how can we prepare, Charles? What can we do? Yeah. So, yeah. Whether it's time to push like, and that other essay you mentioned, the rehearsal is over, is kind of along the same lines. Yeah. Like the shit gets real right. now. Right. Like, you know, you could be talking about, you know, totalitarianism. You know, you could be taking exception to the standard medical system and so on and so forth. But you didn't actually have to do anything about mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Now, that's changing. now that's changing. Like for a lot of people, like, you know, you have to take a stand. Mm. You, you, you. Or, or you're going to get fired. Like, and I'm saying now is the time to maybe it's to speak out, um, to take a position, to to like actually act on what you know and what you believe and stop pretending to believe something else, mm. but to align our actions and our truth. Mm-hmm. Like it, it, we're not practicing anymore. The time that we've been practicing for is here. Mm-hmm. Now, what does that mean specifically for each person? I don't know. I'm not going to tell you, you know, you, (laughs) I know better than you what you should do. You should, you know, sacrifice your family's uh, 
security and you know take a stand against your company's policy or something like that. I don't know that 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 is what you should do. All I want to do right now is alert people to whatever truth is in what I said for you, that it's time to push, mm -hmm. that the rehearsal is over. What does that mean? Once, once you accept, acknowledge that truth, like, yeah, then you will become attuned to what is yours to do mm. in this moment, mm. in this special time. And mm. I believe that we are going to be called into doing things that are, um, you know, just at the edge of our courage mm. that because anything, so like we've been trapped collectively and many of us individually um, in a state of being that was like stage two of birth becoming more and more intolerable, yet there was no alternative. Mm -hmm. um, we were, we were stuck. Right. Like we've, we've known all these holistic and alternative things to do in agriculture in medicine and in politics, you know, in, in so many realms, but we haven't done them. Mm -hmm. Like we know how to heal the environment. It wouldn't be actually that hard, but we haven't done it. Mm -hmm. Like we're trapped in our systems mm -hmm. and COVID has given us, has provided an intervention. It's an interruption. Mm -hmm. Like no longer can we say we're trapped in it. Um, now it's time to do something. Right. And, and because that is a different, it's, it's, it's different. It's new. It's not only a new action, but it's also a new being that is living in a different way. You can't actually change your life in a meaningful way without changing yourself. Something is lost, something is gained, and there's uncertainty. You don't know how to navigate in this new reality. And fears come up that maybe you'd been avoiding for a long time. And so, so it is scary to step into this um, next phase of development. And that's one way to identify it. Mm -hmm. Like, what is yours to do? Often, there's a little bit of fear around it. Do I dare do it? Do I dare do it? And then all of a sudden, the moment comes where you just do it. Mm -hmm. And I don't need to give any more instructions than that. Yeah. It's not about instructions. Right. It's about invocation. Right, right. Taking a big deep breath for that one. Yeah. So I wanted to read a little passage from Robin Wall Kimmerer's book. Um, I think it ties in beautifully, and I think it'll be a nice way to wrap up our conversation. Um, she uses some really... Have you read this book? I, I can't remember. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Beautiful, beautiful very, book. Very, very well done. It's so complimentary yeah. to the work, to your work, but also to so many others who've been seeing this, have been feeling the pressure and have also not really non known where to go with it, but they also know that there's a lot of resources out there to make this possible. So... Um, this is at the very, very end of her book. There's a chapter called Defeating Windigo. And Robin Wilkimmerer, for those who don't know, she's a um, of the Potawatomi Nation lineage in uh, New York area. And her book is really all about the abundance that is offered as a gift through nature and how if we were to um, if we were to retell our story 
not in the lens of scarcity, but in the lens of abundance, how much, how much richer could life be and how much more sane and interwoven would our communities be? And within the Potawatomi um, mythology, there's this character called the Wendigo. And really, it's kind of like their, bo- their bogeyman, you know? Um, every culture has this. We all have these myths of, like, the villain that's coming out to get us. And in this chapter, kind of worked all the way up to this chapter where we're now defeating Wendigo. Wendigo being that ill, the societal ill, the thing that's coming to get us, the thing that we're at war against at all times. It's, it's what leads us to divide ourselves, divide and conquer, to exploit Earth, to exploit others, to silo our resources off for our benefit, as if, if our neighbors were starving and sick, as if we could actually live you know, alone, isolated. You know, it sounds like the Twilight Zone. So I'm going to read a short passage from here. In our stories, when humans alone could not conquer them, the people called, the people called upon their champion, Nana Bojo, to be light against darkness a song against the shriek of the Wendigo. Basil Johnston tells the story of an epic battle fought for many days with legions of warriors led by their hero. There was fierce fighting, many weapons, trickery, and courage as they sought to surround the monster in his lair. But I noticed something in the background of this story different from any Wendigo tale I'd ever heard. You can smell flowers. There was no snow, no blizzard. The only ice was in the, was in the heart of the Wendigo. Nana Bojo had chosen to hunt down the monster in the summer. The warriors paddled across ice-free lakes to the island where the Wendigo had his summer refuge. The Wendigo is most powerful in the hungry time, in winter. With the warm breezes, his power wanes. Summer in our language is Nibin, the time of plenty. And it was in Nibin that Nana Bojo faced down the Wendigo and defeated him. Here is the arrow that weakens the monster of overconsumption a medicine that heals the sickness. Its name is Plenty. In winter, when scarcity is at its zenith, the Wendigo rages beyond control. But when abundance reigns, the hunger fades away, and with it, the power of the monster. Each of us comes from people who were once indigenous. We can reclaim our membership in the cultures of gratitude that formed our old relationships with with the living earth. Gratitude is a powerful antidote to Wendigo psychosis. A deep awareness of the gifts of the earth and of each, of each other, is medicine. The practice of gratitude lets us hear the badgering of marketers as the stomach grumblings of a wendigo. It celebrates the cultures of regenerative reciprocity, where wealth is understood to be having enough to share, and riches are counted in mutually beneficial relationships. So with that healing story in mind. Um, and her book, by the way, is just a collection of, of healing stories for our society. With that in mind, how can we, in moving forth, can you talk a little bit about the importance of gratitude and, and abundance and, and maybe as it contrasts with this illusion of scarcity, right? Because you've, you've actually mentioned in a lot of your interviews and, and right now, more than ever, we are in a state of abundance. We have as many resources as we ever have been able to tap into, yet people are as unhappy and as um, isolated as ever before. So can you just maybe finish our conversation with a little, I don't know, capture a little bit about the story of defeating Wendigo and how that might guide us mm-hmm. um, into this, this third or fourth stage of birth or rebirth? Yes. Yeah. 
Windigo. It's also called Watiko in different yep. uh, languages of Eastern North America. Um, gratitude is the process of integrating abundance, mm. of integrating gifts. You haven't fully received a gift if you don't feel grateful for it. Um, and that could be because the gift is not meant for you. Mm. You know, like if I gave you a gift of, you know, um, say a new lawnmower when you live in an urban apartment, you'd be like, uh, thanks, Charles. <laughs> like, you know, but but if I give you something that you that you actually need that meets you in a in a real way, then you will, if you fully receive that gift, then you feel gratitude, and that gives birth in you a desire to give forth from that abundance. If you are truly experiencing abundance, why wouldn't you want to give? Because you know you have enough. Mm -hmm. Our society today has a superficial appearance of abundance, but actually we live in deep poverty. Mm -hmm. Because as Robin Wall Kimmerer says, of indigenous societies, they, they count their wealth in mutually sustaining relationships. In that sense, we are poor. Mm -hmm. Those relationships have been stripped from us through the monetization of society so that we don't need each other. Mm. All we need is money mm -hmm. and you'll be fine. But then the security you get through money is only as stable as the money is. And that could be easily taken away from you. And what are you left with then? No relationships to people, no relationships to nature. You don't even know how to gather food. You don't have the, the skills of taking care of each other, of healing each other, of building houses for each other, of growing food for each other, of telling stories to each other, all of these skills. So the I like to look at it in terms of, of birthing a desire to recover true wealth. It's not about sacrifice. It's not about making do with less. It's making do with more of what we actually need and actually want. Really, ultimately, it's to belong again. It's to, to be connected again. Mm -hmm. It's to fully exist. Because if we are, in fact, not separate selves, if we are relational selves, then the ideology and systems of separation have stripped us of our very being. And we long to recover it, to reestablish ourselves in the world, to be fully here hmm. in the world, which means to be related, no longer to transcend nature, but to be full participants in it hmm. and fully engaged in life and death. It's just to be here. Hmm. And I feel, to just say one more thing about gratitude, I feel grateful for, for the way that, that the world, even in times of intense separation, the way that the world still reaches into my bubble mm -hmm. and reminds me that I'm here, even if it takes a form of illness, mm -hmm. like reconnecting me to, to earth, to life to need, 
to the experience of being dependent so that I can receive mm. and feel that gratitude and be integrated once more into the matrix of relationships that that is life. Wow. Yeah. It's so simple. It's so simple. It is. I mean, you even just brought up illness. I mean, how many times have you seen somebody go through, it's sort of epiphanal for them. Like they get sick, they're worried about their health. Turns out it wasn't as bad as they thought. And they have this, initially anyways, they have this like new lease on life, right? They're so grateful for being alive. They're so grateful to be able to dig their feet into the soil and to kiss their wife and children or whatever. Um, there's something really important to that. And, and actually, when you give gifts to people, it's amazing how few people are, are okay with accepting a gift. And even for me, yeah. it's uh, you gave me a couple copies of your book, and I was like, um, when I was at your house, and I, I think I my immediate gut was like, oh, let me pay you for it. And it was like, you were like, no, I, I insist it's a gift. And for me, even as somebody who talks about this all the time, it's like, I, gosh, I caught myself, you know, it's, it's like, we need to have that. It's all, everything's so transactional in every aspect of our lives that whenever a person gives you their time or can I rub you your, can I rub your feet or whatever else? It's like, oh, but I didn't do anything for you. And I didn't do anything to deserve that. And that is a part of mm -hmm. the old story. That's a part of the story of separation, right? That there has to be an even exchange right. of goods or something like that. Right. A, a real gift culture. It's not, there's not a lot of exchange, right. you know, I do something for you maybe, and then you feel gratitude and then you do something for someone else. Right. 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 Also in those cultures, if like, if I like say visited you and you know, you fed me and I offered to give you money, that would be considered a grave insult. Yeah. yeah. Because what I'm saying is I am not willing to return the favor. I am not willing to be in debt to you and to the whole society. I'm not willing to recognize that. I want to stay separate. Mm. I want to be financially independent. That's that's one reason why financial independence is so attractive, mm. you know. But but really, that's not what we want. Mm -hmm. You know, we want to be connected. We want to owe each other. We want to be um, held in a culture of gift where we, we see our whole lives that whoever is in need receives mm -hmm. and whoever is the most generous is taken care of. That's security where you don't, you could give it all away and you know, you'll be fine because that's the way the world works. Yeah. 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 I've always, I've always uh, thought about wealth. I don't, I don't know. I think I, I did a lot of work in East, East Africa at one point and, um, Several summers in a row, we were going to Malawi until I realized the amount of money we were spending getting a group of people to Malawi. <laughs> that money actually could be spent in much better ways if we're trying to actually help these communities. But while I was there, I remember there was this woman I used to work with. Her name was Mara Banda. And she had said, like, you know, they, they're the, by the way, Malawi is, for anybody out there who doesn't know, is probably one of the, the five, you know, quote, poorest countries based on our our sort of Western framework of wealth. Like there is very, very little money there in the hands of the people, um, apart from a few, you know, high, high level government officials and some big business owners. Most people are living on less than a dollar a day, but they're the wealthiest people I've ever met. They're the most generous. They're the most fun loving. They're dancing and singing literally 
at all times of the day. They might be carrying a bundle of stuff and a baby on their chest and they're still dancing down the road. Like life is good. I'm going to go make a couple bucks at market. And I know this is a bit of a cliche example, but that woman Mara had told me I'd, I was still a college kid at the time. So I didn't know anything. (laughs) I mean, I hadn't really thought all this through, but she said, you know, real wealth is, is being able to, to make food for my friends. And I was like, shit, I mean, God, like there's so much wisdom in that little piece. Like there is absolutely no reason for me to have a pile of gold that I'm sitting on. If I can't provide food and comfort to my friends and family, then I am a poor person. And, you know, I've heard so many stories like that. Yeah. Right. And I mean, like then there's this term Ubuntu, which actually is part of a, is it part of the Zulu language? I, I can't remember, but it's, you know, Nelson Mandela made it really popular. Ubuntu is I am because we are. And there's something so deeply important, but God, like you said, this is so easy. Like this is not a, an expensive technology or a new Tesla, you know, development. This is just, this is the story of interbeing. Yes. Who's rich and who's poor here? You go there and I've heard this kind of story so many times. People are singing, people are happy. They have nothing yet. They are they, they, they are more secure. How do you know that? Because they're more willing to right. give. Right. Real, like what actually wealth is, it is the freedom to be generous. Right. And here we kind of get it backwards. We think, well, when I have enough money, then I'll be generous. <laughs> when I'm rich enough, then I'll be generous. But it's really the yeah. opposite. It's when I'm generous, then I will experience yeah. wealth. And, and it's, a, it's a, an, another version of the mythology of control. When we finally get everything under control, then we will be secure. Yeah. yeah. Like when we finally catalog everything and assign an RFID chip to every <laughs> single object and can like then we'll finally be in paradise. Right. No. Right. Right. Paradise is already available. Right. With our current level of technology, with a Stone Age level of technology. Right. It's already here. Right. But then, Charles, if we were to accept what you just said, then the story of of progress, right, really starts to fail us, right? If progress is right. the accumulation of stuff through me, through through means of control, you know, if that's what we're all striving for, then of course this is very confronting. So anybody who's listening, I right. get it. Like this is scary stuff that we're talking about, but it's also quite easy. And if we want to see this new world reborn and we have to like there's no other option now we have to exit um then i hope you'll take some of these things to heart charles one final thing i wanted to ask you about you and me and stella and your son jimmy and ember um emily your your daughter-in-law we all sat around one night and had a really colorful conversation around what would the life raft look like for people who are giving birth or who are dying what how could we do that in a non-pathologized non overly medicalized way with, without completely abandoning the, this, the quote, safety offered by the modern medical system. You and I have talked about, and Stella and Emily and everybody has talked about intentional community. And without going too far into the intentional community aspect, one thing I've been arguing recently is if we had a couple of generations of, of children who were born into a place that is um, perhaps not best uh, best described as a as the sort of system of control within the medical system to try to control every little variable to make sure mom and baby are happy and healthy. What if instead of just doing those things that we can measure, what if instead we consider the sounds, the light, the architecture, 
the quality of the food and the water, the, the, the sort of love and respect for the birthing person and her partner and the baby, what could that look like? And um, I've come up with like a bullet list because I'm actually going to do this in the, in the future. And I know that you and Stella and Emily and Jimmy and your brother, perhaps like your whole circle I know is, is kind of in line with this, this vision. And the way the, re- the reason I describe it as the life draft is we don't need to burn down the, the institution in order to create something new. The, the, the creation of something new is exclusive of, of eliminating the old thing, but they're going to have to happen simultaneously with this, this rebalancing. So, so this is a totally open-ended question and feel free to answer as in depth as you, as you would like, but how would you like to see a generation of children coming into the world if that generation of children is brought in correctly, like not correctly, but brought in in a loving, compassionate way? in order for that generation or the generation even after that to to really help to put this world together. How do you see this happening in intentional community? How can we better take care of birthing women or birthing babies? Well, I mean, you just, you know, I think you just described it. I mean, the, the um, it's understood as a sacred process and every aspect of that telegraphs the sacredness to the mother and her family. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you have, it's like kind of going to a spa uh, where every possible um, health uh, technology is available, um, you know, from like the f- maybe full spectrum lighting to, to, um, you know, everything is, there's no, um, you know, off-gassing, like everything's natural materials, even the architecture is sacred geometry and all, uh, the food is organic and from the land and, and the herbs and the, I mean, I'm not going to try to like explain it, describe it in detail. Um, maybe it's part of a larger vision of the hospital returning to its origins as a place of hospitality. Mm. Um, a place where you go and you're made to feel really good mm. and where everybody is here for you. You know, that's what it is to be a guest in a traditional culture. Like the guest is king. The guest is the God. It's not that you're a permanent guest and a permanent God. That's called hierarchy. <laughs> that's called, you know, our current system mm. where some people institutionalize their role as the gods and the kings, the elites. But everybody should experience that sometime in their lives. And one of those times is when you're giving birth. And so the baby comes in and, but it's not like you go away, like ultimately what you want is not to go away to some place to do this. So these these places are outposts of the future. Ultimately, you want your baby to be sung into the world by your whole community. That's how they do it in the Tamara eco-village in Portugal. Mm. Like the first sound that the baby hears when, as it's being born is the whole community outside the birthing house wow. singing to them. Wow. After a few generations of that, I think we would, uh, who knows how connected and how powerful and what capacities of the human being would, would evolve. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah, I feel the same the same as as I do about birth as I do about death because I feel like they're the they're two sides of the same coin. 
But if we could get these two, I mean, most people would agree. These are two of the, dare I say, scariest things, right? Because we don't expose ourselves to this at a young age. And many women who give birth have never even seen a birth. Same with death. Most people have not spent time with a dead body or held a person's hand as they're taking their final breaths or even been there when the, the person passed away. And mm -hmm. um, I'm just, I, I'm super thoughtful right now about how the future would look if we could get these two, if we could get, if we could start to work on these two rites of passage, these two sacred experiences of the human spirit, which are very transformational um, in order to see, to facilitate perhaps the emergence of a, of a new world. I'm glad you, sh you share that vision to yeah. some degree. And for you, all you have to know is that this is yours to do. Yeah. Right. You know, right. You, you don't need to convince me or anybody or yourself that this is the most important thing that has to be done. Although that might be the truth for yeah. you. Yeah. And you recognize it as yours it's mine. to do. Yeah. yeah. Well, Charles, it's been really, really, really great to see you again and to chat with you. Um, I, I'm going to be linking all of your books and some of the essays we mentioned. Um, is there anything else you'd like people to know as to how to find you or how to connect with you? Um, not really. I mean, you know, you'll link to the essays. Yeah. Um, I also co-host with my uh, amazing ex-wife, Patsy, a online community based on reverence, the practice of reverence in communications, even on difficult topics mm -hmm. called A New and Ancient Story. So I'll just put that out there also. Yeah. As, yeah. 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 That's a, it's a great community of people where you're like, oh my gosh, you feel so isolated with some of your thoughts. And then you meet this community of people and, and people there are just happy to have conversation. They're just happy to find like-minded people. And sometimes they're, they aren't like-minded, but there's at least a, yeah. a modicum of respect with how, um, how the community members engage. So thank you so much, Charles. I'll link everything in the show notes and um, hope to talk to you soon. Yep. Thanks, Nathan. Whoa. Am I right? Was that, did that disappoint anybody? Raise your hand. It didn't, did it? <laughs> Charles is amazing. He was so gracious with his time. I'm so grateful that he did that, that he did the uh, interview with me. Um, check out our partners. I mentioned them in the interlude. And you can find more on my website. And if you're interested in Charles's stuff go buy his books support people that are putting out good work he has a patreon account you can go and, and donate i i give uh, some money monthly every every month to him um, because i really want him to continue to speak from the heart and to speak his mind and to put out great content and he's doing that he's going to continue doing that you can also find the new and ancient story mighty forums uh, mighty networks forum and get into the conversation right? Like now is the time. The rehearsal is over. Now is the time to act. If we want medical freedom, if we want to create a new world, we have to each do our part. And that might just be something like supporting Charles's work or supporting the podcast. Uh, we are a 501c3. This is not medical information. We are merely an educational program. Um, do not take this as medical advice. Go to your doctor. I am just a podcaster in this <laughs> when I'm wearing this hat. Um, but please check out our website, belovedholistics.com. You can find the show notes there. And uh, I wish you all well. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.